Welcome, everyone, to episode 55 of the Ed Essentials Podcast. If you've been listening and are finding value in this show, I'd really appreciate it if you took a couple seconds to rate this podcast. By rating it five stars, it will help other educators find the show as well. It only takes a couple seconds and it would really go a long way. Thanks. Today's guest is someone whose work around systems thinking we've been studying in my education leadership courses, and I reached out to him about doing a live podcast with my cohort, which he was so incredibly generous to agree to. He is the founder and CEO of Langford International Incorporated. He's an international consultant, author, and educator whose focus is to create sustained systemic improvement in student learning, school leadership, and organizational processes. The concepts of quality learning, quality learning performance, just-in-time learning, the self-managed classroom, and exponential learning emerged out of these efforts. For over 20 years, he has trained colleagues in public and private K-12 school systems, universities, colleges, preschools, chambers of commerce, and business divisions ranging from Boeing and General Motors to government agencies such as the Department of Defense. He has worked with organizations throughout the U.S., as well as Canada, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and South America. Without further ado, please welcome to the Ed Essentials Podcast, David Langford. Welcome to the Ed Essentials Podcast. My name is Hunter Flesh. I'm an educator and podcast host, and in each episode, I hope to equip educators through the stories and insights from experts across the education field. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter, at Ed Essentials, and leave this show a review. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Now let's get started. everyone. Welcome to the Ed Essentials podcast. I have an awesome guest here today uh, with my cohort here at Drake. Uh, say hello, cohort. Hello. <laughs> and we have uh, Dr. Randall Peters on with us. Hi, Dr. Peters. And we've got uh, also Professor Doug Stillwell uh, in the back here. Thank you both professors for letting me do this. Um, kind of reached out with a crazy idea for this weekend. And we've been diving into a lot of our guest work today, David Langford, talking about uh, tool time, uh, all the stuff and resources that Langford Learning has created and provided, um, and getting knee deep into systems thinking. So uh, without further ado, David Langford, how are you today? I am great. And uh, hello to the cohort and the professors and everybody else in Iowa. So Awesome. So give us a little insight into <laughs> Langford Learning, uh, your connection with Dr. Deming, and sort of the work you're doing today. Uh, yeah, well, it goes all the way back to 1985, actually. I was getting my master's degree at Arizona State University, and this uh, amazing opportunity arose in Alaska to become part of designing um, the first public boarding school uh, in Alaska, and one of the first in the United States, in Sitka, Alaska, Mount Edgecombe High School. <clears throat> And so I, I jumped on that chance, so was the first person hired to help actually design the school. Uh, the reason it was so cool and the reason it's important to kind of understand is that um, at that time, all the oil money was hitting the state of Alaska and basically they couldn't spend it fast enough. And so we were the, the highest paid salary teachers in the world and administrators. Uh, you could anything that you wanted to do, you could do. Uh, we already had one-to-one -one computer technology by 1985, you know, stuff that a lot of other states didn't have. <clears throat> so our idea was to come together and to create this new flagship school. And uh, we got together as educators and decided that the real problem in education wasn't uh, us or anything else. It was the parents. You may have come to that conclusion, too. Um, and so our idea was to create a school without parents. And that's how this idea of the boarding school emerged. And uh, so we started the school in the fall of 1985 with 100 and, 140 students, I think it was. So we changed everything. We had technology, we, we spent tens of millions of dollars remodeling a World War II Navy base in Sitka, uh, had a dormitory, had we had people, we had all the, all the components that you would want to have. And uh, I was part of the committee that uh, interviewed teachers from all over the world. 
And so we had a Japanese teacher, a Chinese teacher, a Russian teacher, and we had a whole new focus of what we're going to do with entrepreneurship and you name it, we were going to do it. <clears throat> uh, that, I'll never forget the first meeting with the superintendent and uh, everybody said, well, these kids don't have to be here. They're, they were primarily uh, native Alaskan kids from all, all over the state. So if they don't work hard here, you know, what's going to happen to them? And as a real leader would, he stood up and said, you know, well, if they don't work hard here, this is their chance. We're going to send them home. So <clears throat> that is a prominent still today philosophy in education. If we could just get rid of the bad ones, <laughs> then everything would be great. And we carry the same philosophy into teacher, teachers and employees. And if we could just get rid of the bad teachers, then the system would be great. Uh, the only problem with that is after the first year, uh, we had sent home 40% of the students. And you know what? Even after we sent home 40% of the students, there was still a bottom 10%. How about that? You know, amazing statistics. <clears throat> um, so at the, in the end of the year, the joke became around the school, this would be a great place to work once we get rid of all these kids. So. And uh, if you think of a school without kids, uh, you know, imagine all the teacher meetings you could have and leadership training and all, all kind of stuff you could do. Uh, it was at the end of that first year that the superintendent said, look, uh, we are just a line item in the governor's budget. And if we can't make this work here, we won't be here. So he said, I'm gonna pay for any training you wanna go to, anything you wanna do. You, you, you come to me and let me know what you want to do over the summer and I'll do it. Well, when I was getting my master's in 1985, I had read done a book report on this guy by the name of Dr. W. Edwards Dimming. <clears throat> so I thought, well, I'll call him up. And uh, so I called up his office and I told the secretary, hey, you know, I'd like to meet with him. He's, she said, well, he, you know, he's kind of busy. He's meeting with the heads of GM and Ford and the U.S. military and and, uh, you know, but since you're an educator and Dr. Deming was an educator, he taught for 40 years at New York University. Dr. Deming said, you can come to any of his four day conferences and he'll waive all the, the fees and everything. And I thought this was awesome since in 1985, his conferences were going for $1,200 a pop, which was a huge amount of money then, it still is today. So I went, um, I went expecting to hear um, about business, manufacturing, and there, that, there was a bit of that, but most of it was about education and leadership. And uh, I came out of that just astounded. And so I went to a couple more of his four-day conferences and they started to meet him. And, <clears throat> and since I was one of the very few educators at the time that was paying attention to Deming, he uh, took an interest in, in personally humiliating me for the next seven years. And uh, basically taking my whole philosophy of education and just throwing it out the window and uh, whacking me up outside of the head constantly and saying, you know, there's a better way to operate, a better way to lead. And, and you have to understand uh, profound knowledge. And uh, <clears throat> I imagine you guys have been introduced to profound knowledge. And uh, I said, well, I don't have any of that. So how do I get that? And uh, I, you know, I just said, you know, I'm just a lowly teacher at the time. And so I, he said, change has to start from the top. And that's what you're all leading, you're learning in your leadership class, right? That you, you're going to be the top of something. And so I interpreted that to mean my superintendent, my principal. And so I immediately got back to the school and started telling the superintendent and the principal what a bad job they were doing. And they had to change their evil ways. And uh, they weren't too excited about what I had learned. In fact, the superintendent said, look, Langford, get, get back to your class and uh, leave the management to us, okay? And so I got kind of depressed about that for a couple of weeks. And then one day I walked into one of the classes that I had and I looked at the students. I said uh, to myself, I must be the top of something around here. And if change has to start from the top, 
maybe I'm it <laughs> and I have to do something different. Now, I'd already been doing everything different I knew how to do. I was teaching technology and business classes and uh, I'd won teacher of the year for technology in the state of Alaska. And, and so I was doing everything that every uh, consultant told us to do and all kinds of stuff that just wasn't working, that data wasn't changing, the attitudes weren't changing, nothing was happening. So I so finally started taking Deming's message about systems thinking to heart. And uh, I started asking the students that I had, and I just started with one class in a PDSA kind of uh, process. And because uh, I, I thought, well, I'll take this class. It was actually, I was teaching a class on artificial intelligence and I only had about 10 kids in there. And I thought, I, I can't screw these kids up too much because they're, they're all great kids. And so I'll start there. So I started asking them to identify and prioritize <clears throat> what was wrong with our class. And lo and behold, they were very excited about telling me what a bad job I was doing. <laughs> and uh, I got very depressed over that, actually. And even today, when I work with teachers and I get them to start doing the very same things, whether it's a kindergarten class or a, a university class, the same thing kind of happens. They get kind of depressed about it because everybody's trying to do a good job. I mean, nobody's, nobody goes in saying, you know, oh, gee, I'm going to do a really bad job today, right? You're doing the best things that you know what to do. But a lot of times without profound knowledge, uh, you're off to the Milky Way, as uh, Deming would say. And especially if you start following fads and uh, shiny pennies and new things that come up all the time, let's try this, let's try that. And over a period of time, um, teachers start to say, you know, what's, what's the flavor of the month this month, right? Or they get a new administrator in and, you know, they're all excited about doing something cool, something new, da da da, da. And you have teachers that say, you know, we, we can wait you out. <laughs> we'll probably still be here when you're long gone. So how do you change that whole process? How do you work through that? Well, I, as I started with this one class and they started telling me things that I didn't even understand what's going on. And when I had them prioritize, uh, I got things like, you talk too fast. You, uh, I, we don't understand your accent. I said, what? I didn't even know I had an accent. Um, we don't have enough time to, to do what it is you want us to do. And, uh, it started leading me down a path of starting to understand the fallacy with our entire education system and the history of how it was set up on the Prussian grading system from the 1800s and, and ranking people and everything we're doing with SAT scores and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And even like valedictorians, right? You can't have more than one or two valedictorians or else you're, you're, not, you're not a tough school, right? And when we should be thinking just the opposite, we should be thinking like, how do we get the maximum number of kids to that level? <laughs> well, you can't keep doing what you've been doing and just expect a different result. And that's what we've been doing at this high school. We just decided, oh, we're gonna work harder. We're gonna grade harder. In fact, the year before I met Deming, I taught all the teachers to grade their students to one one thousandth of a point. And we actually chose a valedictorian that year by one one thousandth of the point. And we were so smug that this person was that much smarter than the next person and that we had done something. And I'll, I'll never forget when we announced it, the, <clears throat> there was one person that smiled and about 12 kids that burst into tears because they had also worked hard and they had also started to work through it. So the whole, the whole system just seemed flawed and and uh, lacked purpose and aim. And that's what Deming talked about, right? That his number one point was, you know, you've got to have an aim of the system. And what is the aim? And if I'm going to start with my class, my aim would be that everybody in the class would get an A. And so then what would have to happen in that class for, for things to happen? And so it, start, it starts to get you to think about how the system is built and set up 
things like uh, <clears throat> deadlines, you know, in traditional education systems, we make uh, learning very flexible, but we make time rigid, meaning learn any old amount you want or produce in any old level of work you want, as long as you get it in by Friday, because that's the deadline. And it even has the word dead in it, because if you don't get it in, you're going to be dead. And, uh, and if you don't get it in, we're just going to make your life so, so miserable that you wish you would have got it in. And what it does is just produces massive amount of waste and poor quality work and, and kids not trying and et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't take into account uh, the neuroscience of learning, right? Because uh, for all of you in the class, if I gave you a difficult statistical or math problem, I'll bet there's some of you that could probably solve that in a matter of minutes or hours or whatever. And there would be others that might take a couple of days, but you could still learn to do it. It's just that you haven't had the background and the, and the understanding that somebody else has in the, house, in the class, right? And it's the same way if I say the English problem or anything else that we have going on in education. So if you switch, like Deming said, you have to have a different theory, right? What's your new theory? And uh, <clears throat> you may uh, see, and maybe in your own schools, you have something on the wall that says something like, all, all children can learn. And that's really not true. The, the system doesn't believe that. It says only the system only believes that a few kids can really learn to a, a very high level. And it manages in such a way to, to make sure that that actually happens. So as I started learning to manage that class differently and change the structure to say, no, we're going to make learning and the quality of what you do rigid, but we're going to make time more flexible, meaning we're still going to have target dates that you have to get things in. But if you don't get it into the standard that we're going to set together as a class, then you're going to have to keep working on it until you do. And if that takes you an extra day or two days or whatever, then so be it. But you have to get to that level. And, and I learned that by talking, having conversations with Dr. Deming, because he had classes at, the, at New York University. And I said, what do you what do you do? I said, do you have assignments? He says, yeah, I have assignments and papers that people have to write. And I said, well, what do you do if you get a paper in that you, do, you don't feel is to the level of quality that it should be. And he said, well, I sent him a note and I said, you know, we need to have a chat about this and we need to talk this through. And, and then you need to fix this and you need to fix that and maybe rework this. And, uh, and uh, they keep working on it until they do get it there. I, I thought this was like earth shattering. <laughs> this was not possible in education, right? But when I applied this to first one class and then two and then three, and then I was teaching about five or six classes at that time, I had about 135 students. At the end of the first year, <clears throat> I had 135 students. I think I had 130 A's and five incompletes. And I was so excited at the end of that year to turn in my grades. And probably as soon as I pushed the button uh, to turn in my grades, uh, within five minutes, the principal was in my room. What are you doing, Langford? And not only that, the academic counselor was there as well with them. And they had six guns on their hips and uh, machine guns. And <clears throat> I said, what, what, what's the problem? Is it what, you have too many A's. Well, isn't, isn't that the aim? right? To maximize. I said, I found a method to get all these kids to that, that level. And, you know, then we had a knockdown drag out conversation. The, the guidance counselor said, you're destroying the whole system. You know, what if everybody did this? What if everybody was getting kids to, kids to that level? You know, what would we do then? How, how would we do class ranks and who goes to college? And, Right. It, it brings into play all of these dysfunctional things that we've built into the educational system. And when you understand Deming's theory of variation, right, you also know that, yeah, I might have a whole class of kids that get to that A level, but there's still going to be a degree of variability there, isn't there? Right. All A's are not equal. <laughs> Some are a little better than others. And Deming would say, you know, you know, what are we going to do about that? You know? Just, you know, fail some, do this, do that. 
And then we have no idea the impact that we're having on thousands and literally millions of kids' lives, right? Because we graded them into a poor mentality and poor performance. Well, that was so enlightening. And <clears throat> it was a hill that I was willing to die on that pretty soon the teacher across the hall said, what are you doing, Langford? And then there was two. And, and then I remember, remember on the staff one year, there was I came home and told my wife, there's definitely more people on my side than theirs. And the whole system started to change into, and then it became okay in staff meetings to talk about quality and high performance and how do we get everybody to a high performing level. And so that was so powerful that by 1992, we had over a thousand people a year coming to, flying all the way to Alaska to see this tiny little school. And they, they would literally get off the plane and, and come to the school and look in the windows or stand in the doors and, and they say, well, we don't get it. You, you have chairs and computers and you have all the stuff we have. What's, what's the big deal, you know? And so what I would do is just put them with students and have students go around and students, students explain to them what was happening and what was going on. And at the end of the, their visit time, then they could meet with teachers. And by doing that, people were just blown away that kids understand, understood the lesson plans. Kids understand, understood the theory of what they're trying to do. Kids understood how to operate. And, and these were kids that normally we would not expect to be able to talk and think at this level. 82% um, of them coming to us had either drug, alcohol, or sex abuse in their background. 40% were social referrals from the state. You know, I can go on and on. These were <clears throat> kids that, and these are just normal kids from villages and schools all over the state. So uh, by 1992, Dr. Deming really started pushing me to start a consulting and training business similar to his. And he said, look, you proved you can do it in one school. And because uh, I was looking at becoming a superintendent in other districts and working that, he said, you know, more examples is, is not going to change the theory. So what we need is more training, more development, more widespread um, use. And so that's how I started doing consulting and training starting in 1992. And I thought, well, I'd be doing that a few years. And then <clears throat> then I'd get back into the classroom or become a superintendent or principal or something. And, and then it's, it's gone on now for 30 to 40 years. <laughs> and it's since gone worldwide. And uh, for one period, about 15 years, we had over a thousand schools in Australia that I would go down there for two months a year and do training and people would send people those training cycles. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty massive transformation with over a thousand schools. So that, that's kind of the short of it. And so the materials that you have and the tool time book, those kinds of things, those all started in my classes. Um, for instance, a consensogram is probably a tool that you know and recognize now or a parking lot. Um, but that started from my classes. How do I begin to get feedback from students about how am I doing? And Dr. Deming taught me that. He always said, I, I need to know how I'm doing not how the students are doing, right? How am I doing? How am I functioning? If I, because if I change what I'm doing, I'm gonna get a different, different level of performance and variation from the whole, right? And so that's what statistical variation starts to get you to understand. Um, I add a fifth element always to Deming's profound knowledge and that's neuroscience because Deming was super into that. That's the first time I, when I met Deming in 1985, that's the first time I ever even heard about neuroscience or, or what was the study of the human brain about how does thinking actually take place. And I think today, if I had a chance to talk to Deming, I would get him to add a fifth element, <laughs> neuroscience to profound knowledge. So that, that's, that's uh, my elevator speech. And that brings us up to this point, so. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. 
that's, I'm really thankful that you shared that story because I think when we start learning about this work and systems thinking and you hear about the story of David Langford and Sitka, Alaska, you think it's just a Cinderella story. Um, <laughs> and and in, in a lot of ways it is, but in a, in a lot of other ways too, you, you had to go over so many hurdles and barriers to get where you are at now. And I think for all of us in this cohort, we're all in very contextual situations where we have some staff that are really supportive. We have school boards that are really supportive or the opposite of the spectrum. They're not supportive. And so as we equip these skills and acquire this knowledge of Deming and using the Langford tools, all of these things, when we are starting out in, in, in leadership, or even if we've been in leadership for a while, how can we go about initiating, supporting, and sustaining this focus on what we call like a quality approach? Um, if the system we're working in is not very supportive of it, similar to the one that you mentioned as you were learning all about Deming's work. Yeah, it can be very frustrating if you you go back and you've got all these new ideas and then you start springing it on board members and other people, just like I did. And then you get, you know, depressed, like, oh, well, see, this is not going to work. It's, this is not going to happen. But when I talked to Dr. Deming about that, and because it, it was a lot of work to begin with, it was, I, I felt like quitting many times and, and giving up. And Dr. Deming helped me understand, you start with the largest circle of influence that you have. So you have to think about when you leave this class and you get back to your schools, et cetera, what's the largest circle of influence? That's why I tell that story because when I looked at it, my circle of influence at that time was not <laughs> the whole school, was not the whole staff, was not, you know, and me trying to do that, you know, drove me crazy and would be driving them crazy too. So I just started with my largest circle of influence, which was one of my classes. And I thought, well, I have to understand how to transform this class. And I basically just asked, started talking to the students instead of talking at them <laughs> and saying, what do we have to do to transform this class so that everybody in this class is achieving to the very highest level that we can get it to happen? And, and lo and behold, they had, they had really good ideas about what to do, uh, but it, would, it, would took, it took me having to change to do that. So that, that's the same advice I would give you is if you really like all this and you see the potential in it, when you go back, start with the largest circle of influence that you have. And, you know, that could just be yourself <laughs> to begin with. And then from there, what am I doing? How am I going to change to get a different result? And you don't have to take my word for it. You can actually go back and look at either test score data, grade data, attendance data, any data set you want, plot it on a run chart over 12 data points, and take a look in the last 12 years, have we done anything? <laughs> has anything gotten significantly better? And generally with the districts I start with, no, all they've had is random variation. So randomly one year scores go up and everybody gets awards and everybody's happy, right? And then randomly the next year you get a bunch of uh, immigrant children that can't speak English and your scores go down and everybody's upset and right and so systems love to respond to special cause variation as if it's common which is what Deming said is one of the deadly diseases so yeah my advice would be take a look at yourself think about okay what's the largest circle of influence i had and actually before i even started with my classes i started with my own children <laughs> and i started thinking about okay, how does this apply to my children? I have five kids and they were all really little at the time. And uh, so I started doing PDSA studies with, with them. Um, what, uh, you might find this funny, but one of my best studies was what we called the spilled milk study. So four of them were all at the age of six. And so you, you, if you guys have kids, uh, you know, there's a lot of spills at, at tables, right? And so, and so I started looking at what am I doing when there's a spill? Oh, what'd you do that for? Right? 
And I'm blaming the individuals without first understanding the system, right? And uh, <clears throat> and so when I'd ask that question, they'd try to come up with an answer. You know, I, I don't know, I guess I'm just dumb or whatever. But not understanding that most of the variation <clears throat> and the problems were built into the system. So instead of doing that, I, I just stopped responding when we had spills. We set up a little run chart over time and we just started monitoring it. And lo and behold, we had an average of about two spills per day in all the meals. And then we had to decide, is that average acceptable? And then I asked the, the kids and even little kids, three years old could say, no, that's, that's not okay. Spills cost time and we have to clean it up. And I said, okay, so what are we gonna do about that? And I said, what, what, what do you think is causing the spills? And I'll never forget my son was about two or three at the time. And he says, the glasses tip over. I was like, duh, well, yeah. And then, but then I started studying the, the glasses and yes, we had weighted glasses for little kids, but a lot of times those were in the dishwasher and then they got other glasses that tipped over easier, right? And so this is amazing. Like, what, so what's the solution? Management needs to buy more kid glasses. Duh. And you won't have as many spills. Instead of getting mad at the people doing the work, right? As Deming would say, see, see what the system is saying. Uh, then we set up a, a spilled milk study in which we set up a little drawing. And every time there was a spill, we'd, we'd put a little X on it, on where the spills were taking place. And the Pareto, lo and behold, the Pareto principle came into play. 80% of the spills were all happening in one zone. <clears throat> and uh, so what was happening? Well, they, they'd take their glass and have a drink, and then they'd set it down closest to them and then bump it with their elbow or something, and you'd get a spill. Well, I've been preaching at them, you know, for years, you know, don't put your glass there, but they had to see the data, they had to see it. And so I said, well, what do you think we should do? And they said, we should have a no spill zone. And sure enough, we figured out that there is an area that if your glass is always in this area, you're probably not gonna have a spill. And uh, so they took some placemats, cut a little thing for the no spill zone. Each kid got a placemat. And all you have to remember is after you take a drink, put your glass in the no spill zone. And since we already had the baseline data, we could compare that to the original data. And lo and behold, the problem went away. And uh, we were all happier and we had joy in, <laughs> in the family, where before it was very frustrating for all of us. So anyway, there's a good example. Where to start? That's really powerful because taking an example of you doing that at home with your children uh, shows how, not necessarily easy, but how possible it is to allow other people and to bring people in on the knowledge of systems thinking. And you've had the incredible opportunity to travel all over the place, um, analyzing various systems, see probably countless system errors, we'll call them. Uh, so as you're seeing these, like, as you're seeing all these errors and you've accumulated all this knowledge over this time, what are some of those most common system errors that you see schools or leaders make and how could we as systems thinkers begin to remedy those really common errors? Yeah, so um, one of the common things that I see all the time, and uh, I think Doug Stilwell's on, and uh, a phrase that I drilled into him when I started working with him was, is uh, he'd have a problem. And then instead of trying to understand the problem, he had a whole list of solutions. Well, we're thinking about trying this or we're thinking about trying this or thinking about trying that. And one of the things that I teach all managers or leaders to first think about is like, for what problem is that a solution, <laughs> right? You run off to this national conference and you hear this great new speaker that says, oh, do this program and then run back. Sometimes people try to put my work and Deming's work into that category, but it, it's, not a, it's not a program <laughs> to implement. It's a way of thinking, right? And studying and, and understanding the system. And that's a whole different 
way to, to think about things. So that's probably the most common thing is that people are putting in their best efforts. And uh, when I met Deming, he said, we're being killed by best efforts. That what? I thought that's what we're supposed to, we're supposed to be motivating people to put in their best efforts. And <clears throat> he said, no, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing, right? And so to, instead of adopting programs and jumping to solutions and trying to implement changes, because as, as you move up in authority, you also move up in the ability to tamper with things, right? And make changes. And when you become the superintendent, you can really tamper with things if you don't understand what the actual problem is. So it, it was the same thing, you know, with my example with my kids, right? I, the, the problem was clearly that they didn't care, right? They were spilling stuff and uh, clearly they didn't care, but 80 to 90% of the problem was me and my wife and how we were managing what we were doing. Well, every system that you go into, uh, it's exactly the same thing. 80% of the result is coming from 20% of the problems or 20% of the causes basically in, in the system. And when you get people to start to think like that and realize that when you set up programs and things like uh, <clears throat> discipline things or bullying is a good example, people don't understand 80% of all bullying is coming from the system itself. The system and what you're doing is causing this behavior, right? And so when you set up anti-bullying programs, what, what are you doing? Well, you're trying to manage the behavior that the system is producing. And uh, if you throw enough money at stuff like that, you can get a result. But as soon as you run out of money or you get tired of running those programs, the data will go back to what it was before because a system is always designed to produce what it was designed to produce, right? It's always going to it's always going to go back to what it knows best. So that, that's probably the biggest number one thing is <clears throat> stop trying to fix things and jump to conclusions and start understanding the problem before you make a change. So, so as we become experts in, you know, the work of Deming and systems thinking, how can we, or, excuse me, what role could psychology play in building this idea of collective teacher efficacy? I know Dr. John Hattie talks about that a lot and the, the impact that can have on schools and school environment and student outcomes. How do we spread this message of systems thinking to more than just an admin team or a couple of people in a district? Um, how can we begin to ingrain this idea of systems thinking into an organization? Um, whether that's building capacity of, of staff members, whether that's just starting out with a couple like you did and then uh, seeing just the student outcomes and, and that being convincing enough. I mean, what would be your advice for um, spreading this idea and, and this knowledge of systems thinking? Well, when you guys become systems experts, let me know because uh, I've been at this 40 years now and, uh, <laughs> and I'm still wouldn't describe myself as an expert, but <clears throat> that's why that's why Deming talks about understanding or appreciation for a system, right? And that's basically what you have to have, that any situation, any problem you're going into, you have an appreciation for a system. And, she, and you understand that a system is an interrelationship of parts to the whole. I uh, remember uh, a, a speech from a guy from, a, from Boeing, he said, you know, an airplane isn't just a bunch of parts flying in formation in the sky, right? <laughs> it, it has to work together in an interrelated system, at, you know, parts to the whole. And so that's the same thing for you is to try to understand the interrelationship of the parts to the whole. And, uh, you know, Deming was very big in the psychology of, of you know, what was happening. And it's mostly how the system is affecting the psychology of the people, right? Where we try to implement psychological programs like teacher of the year and, uh, you know, student of the month and 
all kinds of things like that, thinking that's going to get a change in behavior in the system, but you're actually making things worse. I'll never forget when uh, my third grade daughter came home with a, a student of the month certificate and she had some little trinket that she got to pull out of a box and they'd had a big assembly and brought all the kids in and everything else and and she got student of the month and I know how dangerous psychologically these things are and uh, I said honey I said uh, so what did you do this month's month that really distanced yourself from all the rest of the losers <laughs> I'll never forget she looked at her by third grade they usually were on to me so she looked at her certificate and then she looked up at me and she looked down at the certificate again and then she got this big grin on her face and she said dad you know it was my turn so kids <laughs> by first second third grade they, they understand you're playing a, a manipulation game right can you be student of the month in your class nine months in a row? Statistically, yes. <clears throat> but most systems would say, oh, let's give somebody else a chance. Can you be teacher of the year 15 years in a row in your school? Well, I would bet after year three, people are going to say, you know, oh, let's give somebody else a chance, right? So you realize you're just playing a lottery game. And once you start to understand these things from a dimming standpoint, you become less and less tolerant of manipulating people with psychological games like that. Um, I remember about three years into it, uh, we still had teacher of the year and I was trying to get my staff to, to see the fallacy in this, but you know, they still liked it and everything. So at one of the staff meetings, I, I said, okay, it's time to pick teacher of the year. And everybody's kind of looking around like, okay, what are we going to do? And am I going to win it this year? And, and uh, <clears throat> so I put everybody's name in a hat and shook it all up. And then I had somebody come out and draw a name out. And uh, I said, okay, teacher of the year. And everybody just sat there kind of stunned. And uh, I said, you know, so you see, it's a game and it's a lottery. And so let's actually make it a, a lottery <laughs> if you want to have it, right? Because then if you weren't chosen, at least you'd know why you weren't chosen. That makes sense? But every staff I've been on, when the teacher of the year is announced, everybody's looking around like, really? She, she got teacher of the year? I know her. I know how many coffee breaks she has during the day. And I, I know what's going on. How, how in the world did that happen? And so we start coming with psychological reasons, right? Oh, well, she's good friends with the principal and they go out to coffee together. Well, that makes sense, right? Why you didn't get it. But it's the same kind of thing. You should be wanting to have every, every teacher feel like they were teacher of the year. The psychology of that. And imagine if every teacher that at the end of the year was feeling like, man, I know I was teacher of the year. Imagine what new heights you could take things to the following year, right? So why would I wanna risk even one teacher, you know, being destroyed by a process like that, right? I'm gonna to try to come up with a different process to get a different result. And sometimes you, you can't think like that because you've grown up in that system. You've, you've gone to college to learn how to manage that system. You've got experience playing those games, right? It's, it's really hard to break out of the system, but Demi said only, only a leader, only management can break out of the system, right? Kid, kids, if kids figure this out, they can't break out of the system, right? Because they're being manipulated by people who are managing the system, right? Imagine if you had a kid who said, I'm, I'm not going to that uh, assembly for student of the month awards because it's destructive and uh, it doesn't mean anything. Well, we'd probably send them to the principal's office for detention or something, right? Instead, you ought to be asking this kid, hey, well, tell me more about that. <laughs> what does that mean? And that child probably has profound knowledge. And because Dimming said, profound knowledge is not limited to age. <laughs> 
Otherwise, we'd be waiting until you know you turn sixty-five before you had pr profound knowledge. So that's such an awesome example for you to use because uh, I think that's where we're sort of at now is we're understanding why all this system thinking and and looking at things in a new way is so important. But how do we get other people to see it? And so that example of drawing out of the hat is super super powerful for me. That really resonated. Um, continuing to think about staff. Uh, and we were talking just a little bit before we got this call set up on the issue of staffing, particularly with um, administrators, superintendents, but as just educators as, as a whole, we're really struggling to retain and recruit high quality staff. Um, are there ways that we can use systems thinking to find um, those really rock star teachers that we know are going to embrace the students and, and take part in this idea of systems thinking? Yeah, we <clears throat> we spend so much time trying to come up with selection methods and how, how do we get people to do this and that and are, then we're going to choose one and you have to understand that ultimately you're in a lottery system anyway, right? This this one person just outlasted the system and 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 then we got them. And sometimes you luck out, right? And you get this awesome teacher <laughs> in but an awesome system is one in which virtually anybody that, that's qualified to become a teacher, right, could come to your system and over a period of time, you're going to turn, turn them into teacher of the year. I mean, they're going to become awesome. Well, you have to start to think about well, what would that be like? Well, we'd have to have very fantastic training programs. We'd have to have ways of making sure that people were aligned to our aim and vision before they even applied, right? So the materials that we send out to people when they're interested in coming to work for us would be aligned like that, right? Stating our vision and stating what we believe teachers will do and how they should operate and how, how we work as a, as a team. And because uh, when you do that, <clears throat> Some people will look at that application process and go, man, I don't want to work there. <laughs> Those guys expect way too much. And they, they actually want me to talk to the teacher across the hall and stuff. And, you know, I don't want to do that. Well, guess what? You didn't have to rank them out of the process, right? They, they self rank them out of the process. And so when you start thinking systemically like that and you start aligning your practices that when people actually get to the point of applying to those positions, they're actually aligned to the organization and uh, they're, they're excited to come. And, uh, you know, I would do things like create uh, capacity matrices for uh, potential teachers to fill out and say, hey, th these are the kinds of things we want you to know and understand. And on that would be dimming theory and profound knowledge and systems thinking and and we want you to rank your own knowledge on this. And uh, if you rank yourself really low, uh, that does not preclude you from becoming a member of our staff. It just tells us the kind of training that we can get for you once you become a staff member, right? Because you said, you know, I don't know anything about this. Okay, great. You know, when you get on board with us, we're gonna start training you uh, to do that. And then we're going to start a, a support process of keeping you up to date and well trained and on and on board. Um, the, Doug may have told you about the, the Leander School District in Leander, Texas. Started working with them in 1992, and they had about 3,000 students. Today, they're they're closing in on about 55,000 students, <laughs> and have grown exponentially. And they've had three different superintendents during that time, but the districts never lost the focus. In fact, in fact, I just did a two-day board training for them in December, where new board members needed to get trained and, and get on board, but they had the same dimming, dimming focus in that system. So you have, to, you have to always think about it in two ways. There, what are all the things we could do before people get to us, right? And then what do we do with those people once we once they get with us, right? And uh, I'm on the advisory board for the College of uh, Business at, at the university here, and we just had a meeting yesterday morning, 
And I said, what's your, what's your retention rate for new students coming in? Well, you know, they hem hawed and everything else. And finally the provost said, well, it's only about 70%. <laughs> only about 70% of the kids that come to us actually end up finishing a class. Well, what, once you understand the brutal truth of that, you have to say, well, are, you, are we happy with that? And if you're happy with that, just keep running the system you've been running. I said, does anybody do exit interviews with kids after they leave? And they all kind of looked at each other. Well, no, we don't really, we don't really know why they're leaving. Or they try to blame and say, oh, well, there was a death in the family and this one kid had to leave class. Well, that's another deadly disease, isn't it? Treating a special cause as if it's common <laughs> within that. So once you get dimming dipped, so to speak, <laughs> uh, you can't ever go back. And you will, you'll, you'll have moments where you slip back into things and uh, then all of a sudden you'll realize, oh, why did, why did I do that? Well, the containing system is always going to keep bringing you back. Uh, Deming said, uh, a bad system will defeat a good person every time. And that's the same, same thing in a classroom, right? A bad system will defeat a good student every time. Right, because it's it's too it's too huge, it's too humongous around you. So, anyway, those are some thoughts. <laughs> Powerful thoughts, to say the least. Uh, so, David, to transition the conversation then away from staff and more so to community members, um, and I know this is a hot button issue here in Iowa. I'm sure all over the place is standards reference grading, um, and and how can we enroll parents and community members in general? Um, when we're talking about adopting a new mindset around grading. And I know I was listening to some of your talks before this, you have a plethora of opinions on, on grades and their use. Um, so maybe just touch a little bit on how can we get uh, parents and community members enrolled in that process of transitioning to a new grading system. So why would you wanna keep trying to improve something that should be eliminated? Right? <clears throat> and if it's so, that's why, that's why we constantly keep having, you know, standards-based reference grading and all these different grading, you know, well, nobody wants to actually look at a whole different way to operate <laughs> and do something differently to get a different result, right? If we could just tweak the grading system, maybe that'll do it. No. And we've got over a hundred years of experience to show us that those, those programs don't work. And so, you know, I, I would encourage you to, in, instead of trying to get parents to swallow something <laughs> new with that, I would start to get parents to start to think about, you know, what are the problems with the grading system? And it spills over into parents not understanding what to do about that. How do I, how do I get my child to get, get more A's? Well, uh, maybe I'll give them five bucks for every A. And then you have a kid that today would say, five bucks? <laughs> it's not going to do anything, right? Now, if there was a hundred bucks per A, yeah, that that might be enough extrinsic motivator to get me to do something. But then they're just simply going to outgame the system, right? They're going to figure out, you know, what do I have to do to be able to get the system to change? So <clears throat> best way to influence parents is through the child. So when you're actually doing something different at school, and especially now with the pandemic and kids coming back to school and the frustration and the boredom and everything that's gone on in the last two years, being online and everything else, um, you know, I, I've talked to parents that <clears throat> have are in uh, have schools where we've been working with them for a period of time, and they'll say, you know. All of a sudden, my, my daughter got the ex-teacher, and the year before, she was crying every day. When I dropped her off, she said, Mommy, please don't make me go to school. I was afraid something terrible was happening, but I'd, I'd go and visit, and it would look just like the class that I was in in 1957. And, uh, you know, they, they don't understand, but then all of a sudden, this year, my daughter gets up early, she makes her bed, She's all dressed. She's ready to grow, go. If she's sick and we tell her she has to stay home, she starts crying and is very upset. And well, that parent is saying something different is happening, right? Uh, 
that something's going on. I'd like to know more about that. And then a great chance for parents to find out what's going on is student-led conferences. Instead of going to a teacher-led conference and the teacher telling me how my child is doing, I go to a student-led conference and the teacher sits there quietly while the student explains everything that's going on, how they work in class, what they do. Here's the data in our class and how we're performing on this and has the changes that we made as a class. I can guarantee you, a parent, any parent that doesn't even know who dimming was goes through a student-led conference like that, they come out transformed. They're like, how do we get more of this to happen? Because um, dimming said, you know, children have a right to joy in their learning and employees have a right to joy in their work. And if there's no joy in Mudville, Mudville something bad's going on, right? And, the, and we got to do something about it. David, you've been more than generous with your time. I only have a couple more questions for you. So this is kind of an out there question, but if Dr. Deming was here today and you can ask him one more question, what would it be and why? And then what do you think his answer might be? Uh, people often ask him those kinds of questions, like uh, be at a conference and somebody would say, you know, how, how I, this is my job and I'm a manager of this hundred people in this organization and, and Dr. Deming, you know, what, what do you think I should do? And how, how, do, how do I think you should, I should start? And, and he would usually look at him and say something like, so you need somebody to tell you what your job is. Is that it? Your job is to think, <laughs> don't just blindly go along perpetuating a system that's, that's continually producing bad results. Um, when you start thinking, well, what's a good result? Well, 100% of the students achieving 100% of the material 100% of the time. That would be a good result, I think. Uh, then you have to take a look at, well, where are you on that scale? Are you anywhere close to that optimum? And, and what Demi said is your, your job is to optimize the system. So uh, uh, probably the only question that I, I might bring to dimming would be, <clears throat> we'd probably have a debate about adding neuroscience to profound knowledge. That's, you know, why not do that? And then there would be this big debate against between is neuroscience just psychology or not? And, and uh, I think with all the research that we have today, we're, we're understanding that psychology and neuroscience are two totally different things now, right? Psychology has to do with the group interaction and how we're managing people and what we're doing, but neuroscience actually has to do with how does thought actually take place? And then how do we change systems so that the brains can function at optimal levels? And uh, it's so amazing that when, when you're coaching teachers, oh, the other thing I was gonna tell you along this line is, don't ever think about, I gotta get everybody on board whether that's a classroom, a school, a parents, right? No, you don't have to get everybody on board. And if you're waiting around for that, you're gonna wait around your whole career, okay? Um, I think Buckminster Fuller did some uh, studies. He said the rate of transformation in the aerospace industry is about three years from when new ideas come in until they become standard practice. In the field of medicine that we think is supposed to be on the cutting edge, it's about 12 years before something becomes standard practice. But in the field of education, it's 36 years. 36 years before you see you know, some good practice that actually becomes the norm in education. And uh, so when you think about that, you think about, wow, you know, maybe I can't change the whole system, but maybe I can change this system. So uh, my friend, Dr. Myron Tribus is, was a contemporary of uh, Deming. And he said, you know, you preach to the masses, then work with the volunteers. Okay. And so one of the things that a conversation they had with Deming, he's, I said, uh, 
he, he kept talking about uh, critical mass. You need critical mass to change an organization. And I sort of envisioned that to be, if you've got a hundred teachers, well, I need like critical mass and like 70 of them to get on board. Well, Deming was also a physicist. And when I talked to him about that, about critical mass, he said, no, it's, it's, the, it's the tiny amount of plutonium it takes to create a, a nuclear uh, bomb or, or whatever, a power plant or whatever. And I said, well, what does that mean with people? And he said, well, I like to think about the square root of the organization. So if I've got a staff of 25, right? If I can just get critical mass of five people <laughs> working with me, we can transform this organization. Now that's, that's very empowering. I don't, gotta, I don't have to get everybody on board. You know, I, I just have to get five parents <laughs> out of this class. Those five parents will help us, help me transform the class and then the whole school. So. Absolutely. David, how can people connect with you and support Langford Learning? Well, you can always send large checks. It's, it's always appreciated. <clears throat> you know, I'd love to get those things randomly in the mail. I keep waiting for one, but they never seem to show up. So, um, yeah, it's just, the, the materials, we have a website, langfordlearning.com. Um, you can, you have questions, feel free to contact me at david at langfordlearning.com. Um, I'm not always as prompt as I should be because by the time I, like you guys, by the time I wade through 46 emails in one day, you know, I may get to yours then, but I will get back to you. You will get on my list and I will get a response back to you. So this doesn't have to be the end of our conversation, so. Awesome. Uh, and I have one final question for you before our Q&A. So uh, this is the, the question I like ending all the episodes with. So say there's a complete revision of schools across the world, and we decide to build a brand new education system from scratch. As they interview educators to shape this new school system, they select you to provide guidance. Uh, there's only one rule. They only allow you to tell them three statements. Uh, so what are the statements that you would tell them? Uh, <clears throat> well, the, you know, going back to a Covey principle, begin with the end in mind. So, you know, what is, what is this really going to look like, right? What is the capability of the current system, right? And number three is what's going to be our transformation process, because what you just described is exactly what we got the opportunity to do in Alaska. <laughs> Create a whole system unencumbered by time, money, or buildings. We could do anything we wanted. And what did we do? We created the same system that we'd all come from. Right? We couldn't even think about it. But when I took that question to students, I said, wow, let's imagineer for a second. <laughs> we're gonna get a chance to redesign and do learning like it's ne never been done before. Their idea was to have a, a large dirigible balloon that would have all these structures and things in it, inside of it. Teachers and their families would go on board with all the students and we would fly around the world to where things were happening in Africa or, or uh, Japan for the Olympics or this or that or the other thing. And, uh, you know, we would actually experience this and learn on site. And I said, well, where are we going to get the money to buy this balloon? And kid looked around and he said, well, we're going to sell all these buildings. Oh. So I, I'm of the mind that you can't, you can't think of it. You can't redesign the system. Uh, it's not possible because you're 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 too embedded in the system right so dimming said <clears throat> knowledge comes from the out, outside and by invitation right you have to get to the point where you're inviting people to come in and re-envision you know what we could do or what this would be like and i always go back to the source of all knowledge which is children 
and especially ones that are not tainted by the system, right? Uh, but they're able to think, you know, we have the phrase outside of the box, but literally that's true in education. You know, we're, you guys are sitting in a box right now, right? <laughs> and uh, if the pandemic did nothing else, it got all of us to get out of our boxes for a little while and start to realize, okay, we could actually be doing something different than what we've always been doing. So, so I'd go to the source of all knowledge and ask, ask students, what are we gonna do differently? and with the aim of transforming this so that everybody can achieve all the time. And I guarantee you, you'll get a different result than what you have now. Incredibly powerful, incredibly inspiring. David Langford, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you for being on the Ed Essentials podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ed Essentials podcast. Original music by Patrick Cunningham. Links to connect with us are in the show notes. Connect with me on social media by following at Ed Essentials. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Ed Essentials podcast.